This year we're studying the New Testament book of Acts under the banner, Eternity in Their Hearts. We're looking at what people believe and what people do when they come to understand the eternity that God has placed in every human heart. And towards that end, today I want to reconsider a promise from Jesus that we've already begun to unpack, and then a bit of narrative of how that promise was being fulfilled. First, I want to read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the promise of Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And then I want to read just a few excerpts from the story of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Be saved from this perverse generation. Every follower of Jesus in the world today, every follower of Jesus in this room, stands in the ever-lengthening shadow of Jesus' Acts 1-8 promise. Last weekend, we focused on the initial fulfillment of the first half of his promise, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Today I want to look at the initial fulfillment of the second half of the promise, and you shall be my witnesses. And I want to do so by looking at the story of one man. It's a tale of transformation that serves as a parable of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each of you, of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in every Jesus follower. You could literally say of Acts chapter 2, this is us. My wife likes that series. She watches past episodes nightly while I'm trying to go to sleep. But I thought, this is us. So that's what I've entitled this weekend's message, this is us. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray in these coming moments that your Holy Spirit would empower me for proclamation and empower us for application, because that's the point of the whole exercise. Not that we would receive information, but that we would experience transformation for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen, and as we study God's Word together and listen for the voice of the Spirit, may the Lord be with you. Acts chapter 2 records the very first sermon that was preached after the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit. And the preacher was a fellow who was consistent in his inconsistency. A guy who was never boring. He was always interesting. The disciple named Peter. And given Peter's actions immediately prior to Jesus' death and immediately after Jesus' death, his declaration begs the question, what in heaven's name got into Peter? What got into him? 
How did the man who denied Jesus three times in the space of one evening come to the place where he would declare the name of Jesus four times in the space of one sermon? How did the man who cowered before a single servant girl stand courageously before a great crowd of men? How did a man who once feared for his life preach a message that could have easily cost him his life? In short, how did Peter and those who stood with him move from fear of death to bold witness and do it in the space of just a few hours? And the more important question for us today, how can we make the same journey and arrive at the same destination? How can we put away our fear and become bold witnesses? The answer to those questions are embedded in chapter 2. And the second chapter affirms that the Holy Spirit was given to make us bold witnesses for Jesus. I want you to say those two words, bold witnesses. Bold witnesses. Now I want you to say them more boldly. Bold witnesses. All of us. All of us. So I want to unpack those two words, bold witnesses, beginning with witness. In Scripture, witness is a legal term taken right out of court proceedings applied to spiritual realities. And when God uses the word witness in Scripture, a witness is an object or an event or a person that affirms a truth, that bears witness to the truth of something. So when Jesus promised that his followers would be his witnesses, he meant that we were to speak like eyewitnesses in a court proceeding. We were to bear testimony to his truth in the courtroom of public opinion. And he was making it clear that there is much more to following Jesus than simply living a transformed lifestyle in a broken world. Many people talk about the importance of our actions, that we're to demonstrate our relationship with Jesus through our actions, and that's accurate. He said, let your good deeds be seen by others so that they might understand your Father who is in heaven. But I want to remind you that Jesus promised, you shall be my witnesses was Jesus' way of making it clear that living a transformed life is not enough. In the past, I've heard people described a transformed life as lifestyle evangelism, witnessing by how you live. Others have referred to it as our silent witness, real but silent. But when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. He wasn't calling us to lifestyle evangelism, silent witness. He was calling us to vocal witness because no one comes to Jesus on the basis of silent witness alone. Nobody has ever come to Jesus on the basis of silent witness alone. You see, your silent witness, your lifestyle, tells others that you live by a different set of values. But it doesn't tell them about your new birth. It doesn't make them aware of their lost condition, their sin, and the coming judgment. 
It doesn't explain why the cross and the resurrection were necessary. It doesn't explain the identity of Christ. It doesn't point them toward Jesus. Now, I agree with Dr. Martin Luther King, who said people often need to see God's truth embodied in human personality before they can begin to entertain the thought of it in their own life. I agree with him wholeheartedly. That's why 30-plus years ago, God revealed our ministry strategy, look like Jesus. But I want to remind you that Jesus very promise and Jesus lifestyle make it clear that we are called to verbal witness because the Jesus we're to look like came preaching <laughs> he did a lot of preaching he did a lot of teaching yes he healed broken bodies he delivered people of possession he fed the hungry he spoke out against injustice but he did a lot of preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God and so will the church that looks like him and so will people who look like him. You see, people can't believe in Jesus until they hear about Jesus. They can't believe in the resurrection until they hear and understand the resurrection. Paul made this very clear in Romans 10, 14. He said, how will they believe in Jesus if they haven't heard of him? How will they hear unless somebody tells them? And how will that person tell them unless they go to them, unless they're sent to them? So no matter the strength of your lifestyle witness. It's not enough. Vocal witness is necessary. You may, by God's grace, have a wonderful marriage, but your wonderful marriage doesn't tell your neighbor how they can be a part of the bride of Christ. Cleaning up a weed-choked lot on the north side doesn't tell somebody they need God to clean up the sin-choked lot in their life. Adopting an orphan doesn't tell others how they can experience the adoption of God. Advocating for immigrants doesn't tell spiritual immigrants that Jesus wants to be their advocate. The pursuit of justice doesn't tell people that a just God wants to forgive them of their injustices in light of the sacrifice of Jesus. Silent witness is important but it's never adequate by itself. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, he was calling us to verbal testimony. And Peter and the others immediately and clearly understood that. So in the aftermath of the Spirit's arrival, they just didn't form a commune and live differently. If they had done that, it would have made them a first-century version of the Amish, a cultural backwater, a cultural oddity. People take pictures of it, but they don't sign up for it. And if all they had done is live differently, they would have been first-century Amish. No, they understood that if lost people are going to join um, them in God's kingdom, they would need to speak. They would need to speak the truth about what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had experienced, and what they had learned about Jesus. So in light of that, in light of Jesus' command, in light of Jesus' promise, we can say that bearing witness is not an option for some of God's people. It is a mandate for all of God's people. This is us. Acts chapter 2 is us. This is what we will look like when we take the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit seriously. 
And because of that, if we fail to witness, if we refuse to witness, no matter the reason, it constitutes disobedience to God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It betrays the love of God for a broken world, and it betrays our broken neighbors who need to hear of God's love. So it would be fair to say that witness and power are inseparable. Where witness is neglected, where witness is disparaged, our power decreases. And make no mistake, witnessing is often neglected, and it's often disparaged. In our culture of busyness, with a growing number of distractions, sharing our faith with those who need to know of it is often pushed to the back burner, to that tomorrow that never arrives. I shared with folks in an earlier service, I believe Satan loves Christians who are going to witness tomorrow. I think he'd be content to have the church populated with Christians who are going to witness tomorrow because tomorrow never comes. He's fearful of Christians who plan to witness for Jesus today. Those are the ones that pose a threat to his kingdom. And in our culture of relativism, I think we get intimidated because the culture says when we share our faith, it's a sign of arrogance. It's a sign of know-it-all superiority, judgmentalism, narrow thinking, uninformed worldview. And we listen to those lies and we get silent, forgetting that verbal witness is not a sign of arrogance, it's a sign of obedience obedience to God. And it's not a sign of pride, it's a sign of love for your neighbor. Because if you know your neighbor has a disease that will destroy his or her soul, and you know the cure, and you don't tell them, that is betrayal. Peter knew the power of the Spirit was intended for witness. So within minutes of the Spirit's arrival, he spoke publicly about Jesus as the only way to life. He informed his audience they had missed the mark. They had sinned against the Holy God. They were culpable. They had murdered their Messiah. He pleaded with them to be saved from the perverse culture in which they had invested their lives and their loves and their loyalties. And that brings me to the second word, bold. Peter was a bold witness. And given the perversion of our culture and the pride of fallen humanity and the prevalence of idolatry and the persistence of rebellion and the spiritual principalities and powers that fuel that rebellion, witness requires boldness. If you're going to witness for Jesus, you need Boldness. Now, what is spiritual boldness? Well, the Greek word that's translated boldness speaks of two things, an attitude and a practice. Specifically, an attitude and a style of speaking. It describes an attitude of courage and fearlessness, and it describes speaking that is also courageous 
and fearless. Speaking that doesn't withhold anything out of fear. Speaking that doesn't conceal anything but expresses everything. The word that is translated boldness is found five times in the book of Acts. Every time it has to do with speaking. The last time you find it is in the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Acts where we leave Paul in Rome speaking boldly about the gospel of Christ. So I'd like to suggest a definition. Spiritual boldness is the confidence to speak God's truth based on the conviction that God is with me as I speak. The confidence to speak all of his truth based on the conviction he's with me all of the time as I speak. And since we've all been given the Spirit, we have all been given the boldness necessary to witness. This is us. This isn't just a first century phenomenon. This is you if you are a follower of Jesus. Now, boldness sometimes gets a bad rap because we confuse boldness with witnessing without any spirit guidance and discernment. And I want to remind you that when boldness is divorced from the leading of the Holy Spirit, it becomes ugly. Boldness isn't just walking out and grabbing some unsuspecting person and pulling out your oversized Bible and pinning them against the wall and telling them about Jesus. If you're doing that, the Spirit probably isn't the one leading you into that. Instead, you're, you're falling prey to a mistaken notion of boldness. Witness requires sensitivity, a sense of God's timing, because if, if this is a lost person and Jesus is pursuing them, he might use 20 of his people at different points in their life to pursue them. One to plant the seed, one to water it, one to water it again, one to address the weeds that would choke it out, and finally one to be there when it's ready to be harvested. And I think sometimes we get intimidated about witnessing because we feel we've got to do all of it in one setting. We've got to introduce them to Jesus, move them to repentance, and seal the deal, and have them pray the prayer all in 15 minutes. And when we engage that idea of witnessing, then we push where the Spirit hasn't prepared. We try dropping seeds on ground that hasn't been plowed. We try watering what hasn't even been planted. And we try harvesting when nothing's ready for harvest. I mean, a farmer knows after he plants a seed, he can't dig it up in two weeks and try to squeeze the harvest out of it. And yet sometimes we do that. When do we do that? When we divorce our boldness from the Holy Spirit. And more than a few souls have been driven away from God's kingdom by witnessing that was belligerent, brash, boastful, or overbearing rather than bold. Bold simply means when the Spirit moves you at the right time, the right person, you don't withhold, you speak God's truth. You don't, you don't try to take the sharp edges off the gospel. You don't try to make Jesus palatable for a 21st century materialist. You don't try to get fuzzy about morality. You speak the whole gospel. 
So there's a lot of bad witnessing that goes on. But I want to remind you, one believer's mistakes don't justify another believer's neglect. The answer for bad witnessing is not no witnessing. The answer for bad witnessing is bold witnessing. Spirit-led, bold witness. Now, Luke doesn't say anything about Peter feeling fear while he's preaching, but I don't think he needed to. Obviously, he must have felt some fear reverberating in his heart because he knew the powers of hell were arrayed against him. He knew the powers of corrupt religion and corrupt politics had joined hands to crucify Jesus, and they wouldn't hesitate to murder him. He knew that perverse culture was against him, but he also knew his own checkered past was against him. As he stood to speak, you can rest assured, the devil stood on one shoulder and said, Are you kidding me? You? It was just hours ago you denied Jesus three times, dude, and you're going to stand up and preach? Truth is stranger than fiction. I got to see this. You talk about chutzpah. This is like a bankrupt man giving a seminar on investing. Have you ever noticed when God nudges you to witness, Satan reminds you of every sin you've ever committed? That's not coincidental. The devil is so predictable. The devil just keeps doing the same stuff over and over and over and over and over again because the devil isn't creative. God is the master creator. The devil is boring. Evil is boring. Evil is never creative. Evil is never exciting. Evil is the most predictable, boring, bland thing, repetitive thing in the world. God and whatever comes from God is revolving and energetic and creative in excitement. The devil is just boring. So anytime you go to speak, he's got to remind you of every failure, every sin. Because he wants you to be afraid. But Peter moved past his fears and spoke boldly. Because boldness isn't the absence of fear. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit overpowering your fear. It's God saying, I know you're afraid, but I'm with you, so fear not. This is us. This is us. To be human is to feel fear. The source of our fear, the focus of our fear, the intensity of our fear, the frequency of our fear, the scope of our fear, that may vary, but none of us is immune to fear. That's why one of the most repeated commands of Scripture is fear not, do not be afraid. Fear not, do not be afraid. From Genesis to Revelation, fear not, do not be afraid. So you say, well, I feel fear. Peter did. But the Holy Spirit is bigger than your fear. Now, Peter's demonstration of spirit boldness is sandwiched between two statements that remind us why boldness is needed in witness. In verse 13, some of the crowd were saying, this isn't a miracle from God. These guys are Jews. They've been drinking. They're alcoholics and they're intoxicated. And then in verse 40, Peter referred to his audience as being a part of a perverse generation. 
And what do those two statements remind us of? They remind us that we need boldness and witness, first of all, because the natural man cannot understand the things of God, and human beings always mock what they do not understand. Never be surprised that people mock our faith. Humans always mock what they don't understand. It's a fear response. We fear what we don't understand, and we mock what we don't understand as a way of addressing our fears. So the gospel will always be mocked, even when you present it perfectly, powerfully. And secondly, we're in a perverse generation. And in a perverse generation where people have invested in idols, they seek to protect their investments. They don't want to hear a message that says, I've been going about it all wrong, and I need to start all over and go in a different direction. People hate paradigm shifts. Because once they're proficient in a paradigm, if they have to adopt a new one, it means they start from square one. And all the expertise in the old life doesn't mean a hill of beans. They start from square one. And people don't like doing that. They don't like doing it. That's why some of the greatest inventions in history were initially resisted by the people who were threatened by the paradigm shift. So that's why you need boldness. People, have you noticed, they're not going to say, oh, thank you for sharing Jesus. A few might, but most are going to respond harshly. Now, I want to point something out as we approach the end. Isn't that good news? We're approaching the end. Despite his boldness, Peter still had blind spots. We know that he was hung up on the idea that Gentiles were going to receive an invitation to the party. He didn't like that. He stubbornly resisted that. It was going to take God quite a while to open Peter's eyes. It would, it would require a dramatic vision and experiences aligning, and then he would begrudgingly accept that fact. And I say that because if you're tempted to silence, if you're tempted to stifle your bold witness because you haven't reached a certain level of maturity in Jesus, remember, bold witness comes with the Spirit. Maturity comes with time. And the first, your witness, does not need to wait for the second. See, that's a part of devil's tomorrow strategy. You should start witnessing once you reach a certain level of spirituality. Problem is, if you fall into that, the target, the goal, keeps moving. Every time you're at the five-yard line, they move the goal line back another ten yards. It's like the proverbial carrot on the stick. You never reach the benchmark. They keep moving it. I was saved in the summer of 68. Wanted to be a jazz musician and told my family I'd never darken a church door the rest of my life. I meant it. I just wasn't very good at fulfilling it. But in the summer of 68, I came to Jesus. I went back to Duquesne for one semester before God called me to ministry, and I started all over again. I wasn't a mature believer. I was a brand new baby in Christ. But my first night back, I led my roommate to Jesus. A week later, I led my best friend to Jesus. 
I had a lot of maturing to do. I still have a lot of maturing to do. I'm, I'm just a work in progress. But my witness didn't need to wait for my maturity. Jesus didn't say you'll receive power and then 20 years later you'll be my witnesses. The power came and the witness started. So Acts 2 reminds us that a spirit-empowered church will engage in bold witness. It won't settle for lifestyle witness, silent witness, culturally compromised witness that doesn't have any sharp edges, politically compromised witness. It will speak with boldness that the world can't give and the world can't take away. Why? Because the world doesn't possess the Holy Spirit. And in closing, I want to remind you, because Christians get so easily intimidated, I want to remind you that we should never be intimidated by the rhetoric of unbelieving culture. Because while they may have bravado, they don't have boldness because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And the bold should not shrink before those who just have bravado. You see, if you push against the arguments of the world, you discover the emperor has no clothes. And I want to read a quote that expresses that better than I ever could. It comes from the great writer G.K. Chesterton. He talks about why the skeptic who rebels against God can never speak boldly. Never. And, And I want you to listen to this and think about some of the demonstrations we've been seeing. Some of the stuff you've been reading on Facebook and elsewhere. Here's what Chesterton said, and it's as fresh as tomorrow. The fact that the skeptic doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. Because all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and he doubts not only the institution that he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, he suggests that all life is a waste of time. He'll denounce a policeman for killing a poor man and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the poor man ought to have killed himself because life has no meaning. He goes to a political meeting where he complains that people are treated as if they were animals and then to a scientific meeting where he proves that they are animals. An infinite skeptic, he's always engaged in undermining his own arguments. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality, but in his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. The modern man in revolt is useless for the purpose of revolt because by rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. End quote. So we have demonstrations in which the Hollywood movie industry that makes a fortune with sex and violence, and that constantly attacks the idea of absolute truth and morality, puts some of his finest examples of immorality on the stage to tell us how to be moral. And there is a word for that, insanity. When a woman who has made a fortune grabbing her crotch and objectifying herself presents herself as a champion of the dignity of women, 
When men who watch pornography that objectifies women stand in the crowd saying they are pro-women, when people who say there is no truth and no morality call us to be truthful and moral, it is insanity. That emperor has no clothes. And yet, and yet, people who have the Holy Spirit get intimidated by that crap. The man who says there are no moral absolutes has just made a morally absolute statement and he's so stupid he doesn't realize the illogic nature of his own argument. Because sin makes you stupid. It makes you so stupid the reality of God can hit you upside the head and you deny its existence. The hypocrisy. I don't blame many American women for marching against some of the ugliness that has been stated about women. I'm not opposed to those demonstrations. But where have these demonstrations been while porn is making billions of dollars a year and leading to the abuse of women? Where have the demonstrations been? Where have the demonstrations been against the very speakers in the very industry that objectifies women for the sake of making money? And again, why is it that women who value the lives of the countless young ladies who have been slaughtered in their mother's womb, why aren't they invited to the demonstration? You see, there is no wisdom in sin, there is no logic in sin, and the man who is a rebel against God can never speak about anything because he's lost his right to speak about everything. But we have not lost our right to speak. We have been given the Spirit. We have been called to be God's bold witnesses. Acts 2 is us. Peter is us. Boldness is us. Don't let the world set your agenda. Let the Holy Spirit set your agenda. Gracious Heavenly Father, deliver us from being intimidated by those who have nothing when through the Holy Spirit we have been given all things. Help us to be sensitive, spirit-led, discerning, but bold witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.